The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome Ayo Malinga, Investment Director at the Transatlantic Early Stage VC Fund Beringia to today's episode. Now, IO invests in a number of technologies, including B2B SaaS, VR, AR, and blockchain. And he sits on the boards of a handful of companies, including POC, Zuvu, and Festicket. So, uh, IO, welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thank you very much, Gary. Very happy to be here. Likewise. IO, most um, VR and AR startups that I've come across have a predominantly or even exclusively B2C focus. Your focus is mostly B2B. So where are you seeing the B2B opportunities for virtual and augmented reality? First of all, we are now at the, probably the, at the bottom of the trough of disillusionment of the VR, AR tech hype cycle. And partly just because the hardware just isn't there, but we already have a very clear path for it being there. And, you know, we're recording this in October 2019, a lot of untethered, uh, and that means headsets you can wear on your head without needing a really strong computer is connected to them are coming out very soon, which I'm hoping we'll start seeing more and more adoption of the technology. But as anyone who has ever tried a VR headset or an AR headset on, it is an amazing experience. And when the technology will be there, I think we're going to see wide adoption. So the game for us as investors is to try and understand and think what are the use cases and what will be the killer app that will really make this world explode upwards and also who will be the winners along this journey. In terms of B2B use cases, some interesting use cases I have seen, I think one of the most exciting ones are around construction and real estate. Microsoft HoloLens has shown some demos whereby you can walk on a construction site and it overlays the architectural planning on your, on your environment. And so, for example, if a door is two centimeters to the left of where it should be, you have a red thing blinking and say, oh, this is in the wrong place. And you can switch between different layers in augmented reality and see exactly where things are around you. So this is augmented reality where you can overlay a 3D reality over what you're seeing in real life. Another interesting use case is around training. This is actually one of the earliest use cases of VR because you can be tethered, you can sit down somewhere. For example, crane operation training. Crane is quite a big thing and it's quite hard to simply 40 knot winds when you're on a crane. It's kind of dangerous, but actually in a VR simulator, you can have all of the levers and handles and pulleys and everything that would be inside a crane and let the operator try and see how, how it works. Is that also augmented reality again? No, there'll be more virtual reality. So that's okay. when you're separated from your world outside you, you're being put inside VR, and now you are sitting inside a crane, and the, the levers that you're pulling are actual levers. So you, you have the exact controls, but your eyes are seeing something else than what is actually outside you, and it can really help you train, operate the crane. And then I think from a longer-term perspective, my, again, this is me being a bit futuristic, but in the end of the day, you know, there's very little telling my brain that I'm right now in this room talking to you, and that is mostly my eyes and what I'm hearing and maybe a little bit what I'm smelling. And when VR gets to the high enough resolution and to high enough 
frames per second and the stereo stereophonic or surround audio is already here, uh, we will be able to have meetings and do a lot more of our work remotely because our brains will feel like we're somewhere, right? We can still have coffee chat with someone. We can still go into a meeting. We can still have a little banter with people around the virtual kitchen. But think of, of the impact this can have in cities. And so I think from a long-term perspective, VR could actually swing people out of the cities. So if you think of, of urbanization as bringing people into the city, and I think 10 years from now, we're going to see more and more people, instead of spending two hours in a commute every day, actually working from a pod somewhere next to wherever they live, logging into the office four days a week, feeling like they're there, talking to people, seeing them in super high resolution. And then when they really need to travel or really need to go and have a drink with someone, they can go and do that. So there could even be some green, some environmental benefits from AR and VR technology. Exactly. I think the environmental benefit can be tremendous in terms of reducing travel, reducing pollution. So yeah, that can be very, very significant. Last time we spoke, you mentioned your theory, and I love this phrase, your theory about investing in rhinos, the unicorn's ugly but real cousin. So tell us a little more about investing in rhinos. Sure. First of all, I don't want to take credit on inventing this, but I'm pretty sure I heard it somewhere, but I adopted it now as mine. And I think this comes down to Perengia and our investment philosophy and our investment mandate. In many ways, the way I think about our investment is we don't like to lose money. And it's quite different from the normal VC game that really chases the blockbuster or the unicorns, which is exactly the same, the same idea where one of your 10 investments or one of your 15 investments is going to be this 100x or 15x or 20x return. And this will help you return the fund, and which means you care less about all of the other investments. But our thesis says, actually, and this is maybe part of me spending many years at, at Oak Tree Capital and being a value investor. Warren Buffett says, avoid the losers and the winners will take care of themselves. And so from our perspective, if we look for the rhinos, which are, you know, they have a horn, they're real, they're hardy, they exist. And in the B2B SaaS space, these are real companies that make real money, that have real revenue, maybe profitable, maybe soon to be profitable. And they usually play in a space that may be smaller niche, right? Maybe in a very good outcome, they will sell for 100 million or for 200 million or 300 million. Many of the other competitors in our space and the venture capital funds will not invest in a company if they don't think they can make a billion dollar exit. And it's very interesting niche and have a competitive advantage looking at companies and working with entrepreneurs where we feel that on a downside scenario, we'll maybe double our money. On a good side scenario, we'll maybe sell for 100 or 200 million and make a nice return. So this is a bit our philosophy. And, you know, some entrepreneurs really don't like it and, you know, want to chase the unicorn dream and, and, and make billions. And some are quite happy with our thesis. But again, I never call them rhinos. I don't think it's a very pretty animal. <laughs> so you don't use that phrase when you're talking directly to a startup or an entrepreneur. I'm always happy to joke about it. <laughs> so I know another topic close to your heart is AI for B2B. And I think you've got some advice and guidance to help startups using data network effects to create barriers to entry. So could you walk us through your ideas on this? Yeah, I think these aren't obviously my ideas, but it's part of our thinking as investors. And that is most of the algorithms in the world, in the AI space, are pretty much open source. And so it's quite, quite hard to differentiate on, oh, I have this new algorithm that does something that nobody else knows how to do. So, but you need in order to deploy AI, you need algorithms, you need data, and you need deployment methodologies. 
And so usually the advantage, the competitive advantage the company will have is based on its access to data. Now, if you're working with algorithms or in spaces where you need huge amounts of data, huge amount of training sets, this is usually you're going to be running into the Amazon, Google, Facebook places where they have just have unlimited access. And I think for companies competing on more sort of generalized AI and more generalized solutions, it's going to be very hard. Where startups can shine and where, where we see startups doing very well is on a more niche markets or the way we call it vertical applied AI, where if you have a segment of the market and there are four or five big players and you're able to work with three or four of them, and by using their data, you're making your algorithm better each time, that actually creates, people call it the flywheel effect or the data network effects, which create a lot of sustainability, right? Because if I am, example, if I'm working with the NHS and I'm able to train my algorithms based on NHS data, and nobody else has this data, I will have a very strong competitive advantage against my competitors. Of course, in the NHS example, it's a poor one because the government hopefully will give people data and access to it. Uh, but you can see that in a, in a more business environment, this can be uh, create real, real value for companies. So we've touched upon green issues, environmental issues. Another very hot topic is, of course, Brexit. What impact are you seeing on your portfolio from Brexit and how is Brexit impacting on some of your investment decisions? I think tech in general has one big input to it, and that is talent and people. And I think where we see the biggest challenge is just hiring people right now because fewer, there's lesser supply of quality people who want to come and work here. Part of it, by the way, is just London, because at the moment, actually, the pound went down, so they're making less money in euros. London is a very expensive city. And so if I'm a, a junior developer, am I better off living in a Berlin or Amsterdam or Barcelona, where I get a lot more bang for my buck? But I think London is losing a lot of its appeal in terms of somewhere that is international and open to the world in that sense. So I just feel around talent. In terms of imports and exports, you know, we have some companies that have a lot of import and export business or question mark what's going to happen with that. These are really business things that all clarity will be welcome. Now, you and I have both sat through many, many startup pitches. I'm sure you've sat through hundreds, maybe even thousands of pitches over the years. And when we last spoke, you mentioned that you'd seen one or two really curious, intriguing pitches in recent months. So um, let's hear a little about some of your crazy pitch event experiences. I think this is really about learnings and what separates companies. And I think one of the learnings we have is that the really good companies usually are polarizing. Some people will love them. Some people will hate them. They're a lot like Marmite. And the reason is quite simple and obvious, right? If everybody loves a company in the team, maybe it's too obvious and somebody will do it already. But if it's polarizing and somebody loves it, somebody hates it, then there is usually something there, but like Twitter when they started. And so one company that we saw maybe a couple of years ago came by and they were called Hot Tug. And they were a hot tub sort of jacuzzi that sails inside a canal, which is a tub tug. When I saw it, I was, I just don't understand it. Why would anybody in the right mind want to do this? But my team was really, really impressed. Like, wow, we love it. And it had a like, very strong polarizing effect on us. We didn't end up investing, maybe probably because I, I didn't get it, but they're doing quite well. And you can go check them out online. 
one of the learning there also is that they actually have a sustainable competitive advantage, which not many other crazy ideas have. And I mentioned to you, I was looking and there are five companies that let you send a text on a potato to a friend. I found potato parsley, potato, spider post, text a potato. So, you know, you can send somebody a potato that says, let's get mashed or some other fun things. It's a really cool idea. It's very funny, polarizing, but actually doesn't have any competitive advantage. Everybody can buy potatoes, put messages on them and send them in the post. Whereas actually building a hot tub that can sail in a canal, in all weather, and have such a great brand such as Hot Tug does create more defensibility in your business model. I know which one I'm going to go for for my next anniversary present to my wife. So uh, I think she'll be happier with the hot tub than the potatoes. But uh, moving on swiftly, tell me about the one that got away, the one company, the one startup that you had an opportunity to invest in, you passed on that opportunity, and really you've regretted it ever since. So the way I think of it, I've only been at Berengia for about three years. So actually my, again, luckily or unluckily, it's hard for me to point to a specific you know, unicorn that was here at our offices and we, we failed to catch it. There have been some companies where we had the opportunity to invest in and we didn't get into the deal or, or didn't win. And I think one of them will be a company called Global App Testing. It's a company run by two phenomenal founders that build a very strong network that allows developers of mobile applications to test their applications across huge number of devices all over the world in 24 hours. So they build a really amazing system. I was very impressed by them personally and by the culture they were building and how they were going about it. And this one, again, I was very keen to do, but in the end, other investors were able to win. I think on a more personal level, I think actually the, the one that I'm very always slightly beating myself on I'm a techie by background. So I studied computer science. I love technology. I have spent a lot of my time reading about it and learning. And I've been following Bitcoin since it was $12 or something like that. And at some point when Bitcoin was, I think, $200, I decided to put a lot of my personal wealth into it. And at the last second, before pushing the button and buying it, I just had a bit of like, oh no, what if I'm doing the stupidest thing ever? And I didn't. Time will tell if it was the right thing or the wrong thing. But I think this is one where I was upset with myself because this was really a technological conviction in something that I saw uh, that I didn't follow. I guess we can all sit down and look at our portfolios, whether it be corporate or personal, and think, could have been a bit better ROI if I'd have made certain decisions here and there, but can't get all of our decisions right all of the time. Which tech investors have really inspired you have got a philosophy or a track record that's really motivated you and maybe even helped shape you to be the person that you are? So I guess tech investors, I'm a huge follower of Fred Wilson. I read his blog post quite religiously, and I think he's just a very disciplined and thematic investor. And I think he's done some incredible investments. And I just think, you know, in terms of the individual and the way he thinks and the way he communicates and the way he builds a firm. I admire him. In terms of more general investors, I mentioned before Warren Buffett and my former boss at Oak Tree, Howard Marks, really taught me how to think about investments, how to analyze the investment, how to think about value, and that it really comes down to cash flows in the end, and really how to think about what is the future potential cash flow from this investment and how would the market value this cash flow is what underlies any value in the market, probably these two or three. 
Have you ever had a chance to invest alongside Fred Wilson? Oh, I would do in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one thing that you've discovered since you became a tech investor that you'd love to be able to go back in time, sit down with your younger self, advise him about, tell him about? What's the one bit of advice you would give to your younger self about tech investing? I would tell myself, just do it now. And I think I've always wanted to work in venture capital. I was always had a huge interest in technology since I'm sort of pretty much 17 or 18. I kind of knew I wanted to work in technology investments, but it took me a long time to actually just go for it. So yeah, my advice to young self would be go for it. What was it even back then as a, as a teenager that had you motivated to be a, an investor in tech? rather than, say, to be an so, entrepreneur or an engineer or whatever? So I was working in software since, since I'm 18, but it's the combination of the intellectualizing technology and actually being able to make money based on technical knowledge and belief in where things are going. So there's something, I think, just extremely satisfying and intellectually challenging and rewarding in trying to guess where the world is going from a technology point of view. And multiple times in my quite a few years in technology, I know I had a very good sense of where things were going really, really early on. And I knew that, oh, being able to make those bets and actually benefit from them would have been economically beneficial. A bit like the Bitcoin example I gave earlier. So you're a, a true example of someone who's, uh, who's followed their dream, which is great to hear. I, a huge thank you for joining me today and sharing your views on crazy investor pitches, hot tubs, and ugly rhinos. Excellent. Thank you very much, Gary. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 